Welcome to season four of Knowledge Cast by Ideals. We are excited about this season's guest, and you can learn more about our guests in this new season and previous seasons at jatwwilliams.com/podcast. Did you know Jat is an author too? You can learn more from Jat through his book called The Question: A Guide to Answering Life's Most Important Question, as he shares his personal journey that began in 1993 to determine the values, principles, and beliefs that would guide all aspects of his life. You can learn more about the question on Jat's website too at jatwwilliams.com. Now let's listen to an all-new episode of Knowledge Cast by Ideals. Well, welcome to our fourth season of Knowledge Cast. If you're a regular listener, we're certainly glad to have you back with us again. And if you're a first-time listener, welcome, and we hope you'll enjoy today's podcast and join us again next week. Uh, today's guest is Earl Young. Earl was a 1960 Olympian who won a gold medal as part of the USA 4x4 relay team. Uh, as difficult as a challenge as winning a gold medal was, that wasn't his toughest challenge. And in 2012, Earl faced a tougher opponent than he'd met at any time on the track when he was diagnosed with an aggressive form of leukemia. And he now entered a different type of race, a race for his life. And as time was, was running out in search of uh, for a bone marrow, donor. A match was found in Germany. And, and since then, Earl's uh, six, and since his successful experience with his donor search and his battle with cancer, he has been campaigning through his organization to encourage people to become donors and promoting donor awareness. So welcome, Earl. We're really tickled to have you with us. Thank you, Jack. That's a, that's a great summary. Thank you. Well, before we get into the battle for your life, which kind of sounds crazy since that's the most important thing, but I, I do want to talk about your Olympic experience. I, I believe I, I'm correct that you were just a sophomore at Abilene Christian University when you made the Olympic uh, track and field team. And, and as we said, you won the, the gold in the four by four relay. Tell us about uh, going through the experience of being selected and then having a chance to uh, compete at the highest level in the world in your sport. Jack, it all happened rather, rather quickly. And of course, growing up as a kid, uh, I was fast. I loved to race and people acknowledged my speed and uh, I enjoyed that. But uh, the Olympics was a dream. Uh, I read all the, the books of Olympians prior to that. I remember reading a lot when I was in high school about old names, uh, Pablo Normi and, and guys like that. And when I was 17, uh, senior in high school, I ran 49.6. Now, that's not going to attract a whole lot of attention. It's a good time, but again, it's not going to attract a lot of attention. Uh, one year later, at Abilene Christian, 13 months later, actually, in the summer, I ran 46.6. So I knocked off three seconds in one year. Uh, wow. I will admit, quite unusual. Coaches always say, no, you didn't. I say, yeah, yeah, that's what we did. And that, that is uh, that is incredible. Well, then we knew we, yeah, Oliver Jackson, my coach, awesome man. Then we knew we we had more than we uh, either one of us had bargained for. And the next year, as you just noted, as a sophomore, uh, I ran forty-five nine in the Olympics, took sixth place. I was a world record time race of forty-four nine. I took six and forty-five nine, tying the Olympic record, but. That old line of uh, pick your battles. Well, I picked a tough battle that day. <laughs> and, uh, I joke about having the best seat in the audience, but uh, uh, it was still a, 
uh, a great day for me. And of course, then we came back in the mile relay, the 1600 meter relay, and ran 3022 along with uh, Jack Yearman and Glenn Davis and Otis Davis. And we uh, took the gold in that race. How did it feel going back to your individual race? I mean, that's incredible that you set a world's record and then don't qualify for a medal. I mean, what was your thoughts after you realized that? You know, as a 16, uh, uh, excuse me, a 19-year-old boy uh, thinking he understands the world and everything, uh, it was was an accomplishment. It was another race. I realized with the highest level, but quite honestly, there was a bit of, uh, uh, wow, got through that. it's a lot of uh, stress that you don't realize and uh, anticipation. A lot of emotions go into it. So when it's over, no matter what you've done, of course, I'd love to have the gold of 400, but uh, uh, just the fact that that was completed. Uh, again, 19, I had a lot of life ahead of me. So uh it was, just it being was, just being selected on the team is uh, is incredible. I, you know your your time and, and my time in the four four hundred a little different. Whenever they use the word for speed in Jack Williams, um, for Jack Williams is always preceded by the two words lack of. And and uh, <laughs> I, in, in the eighth grade, I, they, the coach said you had to run track or wrestle. And I said I'm not tough enough to wrestle. So they got got in the track and they put me in the four hundred and. Right. First meet out first meet I ran, it was three heats and uh I won my heat and I was just well, man, I found my race and my time was so slow I didn't even qualify for the next heat. <laughs> I so, understand. You know, I will recall, let me let me recall something to you that's important to me and I, I like to share it, especially with, with young men because and young women and uh things are gonna happen in your life and Later on, you're going to review them, and they're going to be a lot more important to you than they are at the time. At least I've found my life to be that way. And the fellow named Glenn Davis, who had been in the Olympics prior to me, uh, won the 400-meter hurdles, ran a relay. Glenn from Ohio State uh, was a a bit of a hero to me. I thought he was just tremendous. He ran the – I think he one time even had the 400 uh, record. But, uh, you know, when you – when you come to the the elite meet of track and field, the Olympics, and you have that kind of history of just honoring a guy that uh, being your hero, and then you hand the baton off to him in the 1600 meter relay, still today, I'm reverent about that. It just seems so awesome that there I am with my hero, not not looking at him afar, but right in front of me, and the baton off to it. It's a great, uh, it's a great memory and a, and a great honor. Always has been a great honor. Well, I, I didn't, I didn't do my research. I didn't know uh, that detail. I do want to go back one leg before that, though. I, I did have a, a question uh, to really kind of hone in on. You ran the second leg, I believe, correct? Right. Uh-huh. And um, the first leg guy had a slight lead. Uh, if I'm, if I read correctly, what was going through you, madam? Of course, the, the the handoff of the baton is so critical that it's smooth. But what was going through your mind? Gosh, we've got a little bit of a lead here. 
Well, in my entire running career, nobody ever went around me in that four by four hundred. And I wasn't about to let it happen that day. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember his name. Kinder, Manfred Kinder, uh, was uh, the second man for Germany. He took the baton and came up on my shoulder. You could hear a, you could hear a roar. The, the Germans had bought the tickets at both ends of the stadium in the standing area. You went around that curve. If there was a German near you, you heard a giant roar. Right. And so I did hear, hear a roar because uh, Manfred pulled, pulled up on me quickly. And uh, uh, they thought, well, he's going to go past him. Well, no, he, he wasn't going to go past me. <laughs> <laughs> and I uh, uh, fell down the back stretch. I'll tell you, uh, something you might find interesting, Jack. My coach, Oliver Jackson, had a shrill whistle. And I had heard it for two years. And he and my family and people from Abilene, friends from the States, uh, were all up in the, uh, just before he come off the first curve, they were about midway in the stadium. And I heard his whistle, which I had heard so many times above all that crowd, and heard his whistle, which meant you need to pick up the pace. And uh, I can remember that clearly to this day. That... Uh, uh, picking his whistle out of that crowd and uh, picking up a pace of it. I always had the uh, problem of running the first 200 not near as fast as I should. And so that was not a surprising whistle I heard. I needed that coaxing in the first 200. But Manfred never got around me. And I came in and handed off in the lead to, uh, uh, to Jack, to, uh, excuse me, to uh, uh, the third Glenn. Yeah. yeah, excuse me, Glenn. <laughs> and uh, we had we we led all the way. We led all the way by a bit. Well, that's that's a cool story. The fact that nobody's ever passed you. That's a, that's a pretty good uh, pretty good track record right there. Literally, um, something else I'm proud of too. When I talk about being a 19 year old, I am still the 11th youngest U.S. track and field gold medalist in history. Wow. Uh, that probably is just a why is that important? Or I don't know. Maybe it's just important to me. But I realized well, it, I was quite it young. It should be important. That's a small. That's a small fraternity right there. Uh, well, let's let's shift to your your battle with leukemia. What led to the discovery that you had uh, leukemia, and then how long into after your diagnosis was it determined that you needed a a bone marrow transplant? Jack, I was traveling around the country with my partner. We just started a new company, and we were really uh, uh, quite busy. And both of us got a little sniffle and cough. Well, now in Texas, in uh, August, September, you could do that. You got a lot of allergies down here, and you sniff and cough a little bit, and then you cure up and then go on. This one seemed a little different. It wouldn't uh, wouldn't wear off. So I made an appointment with my general practitioner, Wendy Seen. Uh, sitting across the table from him, he's looking at the file, and he said, Earl, you have not been in in four years. I said, I know, doctor. I'm feeling good, except for the sniffle and cough I want to get rid of. He said, well, listen, you need to come in every year for a physical, like everybody else. He said, have you got time today to, to take some tests? Sure. So I went back and did an EKG and uh, blood tests, et cetera. I'm walking down the hall getting ready to leave, and he's walking up the hall. And he said, oh, I'm glad you're still here. I was just getting ready to call you. Come in my office. I go in his office, sit down across from him. He's looking at the file again. And he said, Earl, you don't feel bad? 
I said, no, just a sniffle and cough. Now, looking back, I could see that energy was was down. I, mm-hmm. You know, being, you know, I was still working out. I've been working out all my life. So you have days once in a while where you're off a little bit and you just wait a day and you're back up. Figured I hadn't recovered yet. But I look back now and I see it more clearly. And he said to me, well, you should feel bad. He said, your white factory is shut down. You're making no whites and you're very low. Of course, that's your immune system. I'm thinking he's thinking shots and pills. And I said, what are we going to do? He said, well, matter of fact, uh, I thought you had left. I already called across the street to Texas Oncology and told them that you were coming over. So I want you to take this file and oncologist will meet you at the front door. Wow. When did you ever... Here the doctor. There's a wake up. There's a wake up call. Yeah, there you go. Ring, ring. I went over there. Sure enough, an oncologist met me at the front door, handed him the file, and he said, uh, "Mr. Young, this is not good. We need to do a bone marrow biopsy." Now, Jack, starting right there, I have no clue of what of what the right. future holds. I mean, uh, as you hear me say late, I barely spell leukemia. And I said, "Okay." So I take you back to a procedure room. I put a needle in your hip, take some fluid out. I go to the waiting room. After a while, his assistant comes and gets me. And here I am sitting in front of a, a second white coat of the day. And this is in the afternoon around three o'clock. And uh, boy, this time he said, uh, Mr. Young, I have some bad news. That was his lead comment. Mr. Young, I have some bad news. He said, uh, you have acute myeloid leukemia. Do you know anything about that? I said, well, I barely know how to spell the word leukemia. He said, let me explain. He said, there are about 70 blood cancers. And he took me through, of course, he didn't take me through all 70, but uh, gave me a little bit of education and then closed that bit of education with, and you have the worst. Wow. What, what a day at the office. Yeah, yeah. Your day starts off like any other day, you know, some coffee and breakfast and uh, uh, doctor's visit to get some pills and a shot. And, uh, uh, there you are at three o'clock in the afternoon, and he says, uh, You have the worst. And you and I both watched enough television to know the proper question then. I said, uh, How long do I have? He said, Maybe three months. I said, uh, <laughs> And then he said, No. He said, Let me explain. He said, That's if we do nothing. That's, that's what you have. He said, we can put you on meds and chemo and see just how long your body can, can last. Or he said, there's a, there is a cure. Why the man didn't start with that? Yeah. Never know. But he said, a bone marrow transplant is a cure. So there's those three options. And uh, you'll need to decide what you want to do. I said, that's a, that's a no-brainer. That's a fail test there, isn't it? Yeah, I want the cure. What I didn't hear in that, too, was another sentence was what we may be able to find you a bone marrow transplant. I didn't hear that. I heard bone marrow transplant cure. What he was saying was what I was to learn was, and it's still a fact today, that only four out of 10 people, I hear that, that four out of 10 people who could have further life find a matching donor. Only four people mm. six don't find the matching donor and they die. And yet science is up to such a, a way today that we can take stem cells from your body and plant them in a matching DNA and give them a chance at life. In Offenburg, Germany, two weeks before I was 
pronounced with uh, acute myeloid leukemia. Two weeks before that in Offenburg, Germany, a lady named Christine Wagg became a bone marrow donor, a stem cell donor. I use those two phrases interchangeably because they are. And we'll go deeper into that in a minute. But she became a, a stem cell donor, which is a matter of uh, swabbing your cheek three times, saturating three swabs, filling out a very short registration form, put those in an envelope, send them to the lab, they type your DNA, that's sent to the National Registry, and you are on file saying that if you find a person like Earl who can use my DNA, I will in fact share my stem cells with him. And Jack, you got more stem cells and you know what to do with. It's not as though you're taking some away that you need. And uh, so I went into the hospital, as I said, right after that, uh, that uh, announcement from the, from the doctor. Uh, oncologist and uh, went through four rounds of chemo between uh, September and January and pretty much lived, not pretty much, lived on the 11th floor of Medical City here in Dallas because once they give you that first round of chemo, you've got no immune system. So mm -hmm. you're out running around with the normal folks. You want a safe place. And on January 21st in Offenburg, Germany, Christine left her little village and went to Frankfurt. And in Frankfurt, they put a needle in her left arm like a transfusion. Her blood flowed out into a centrifuge, an apheresis machine. And the rest of her blood flowed back into her right arm. And like I said a minute ago, taking those stem cells out was no, no uh, danger to her. So they took that bag of stem cells, went to Frankfurt Airport, directly to Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, came up to my room. It was almost midnight on the 21st. And two, uh, never forget, two Filipino nurses that might have been five feet tall. The reason I mentioned that that way is they stood on chairs to get that bag as high as they could get it to get all those, all those cells of Christine down into me to give me a chance of life. I have a... A metaphor I always share there, Jack. It's uh, it's important to me to share it because I'm a believer, and it's, it gives me a metaphor that few people get to have. Maybe no one, but for me, it's a metaphor like when it describes how Christ, the Bible, we know Christ comes into our lives if we accept Him, and He takes over and helps us run our sinful lives. It's the same thing that Christine did for me. She is in me now, and I'll prove it to you. If you check my blood right now, I'm no longer being male positive. I am O female. <laughs> That's my blood. That, what, what, a, what a great analogy. Have you had communication with her afterwards? Oh, yeah. My, uh, my partner in my foundation is DKMS, uh, started in Germany 30 years ago, and they're the oldest and uh, 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 most recognized and largest worldwide uh, firms that increase awareness and register people. And that's where she had registered. And I was at a uh, uh, an awards breakfast here in Dallas and I was speaking. And my good friend, Amy Roseman, who is their representative in this area was at the event. <laughs> she came walking up to the podium. She said, Earl, I'm sorry, we've run out of time. <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean? She said, no, of course I'm kidding you. But she said, uh, we have somebody here today we want you to meet. Somebody, somebody I know you want to meet. And uh, 
out from behind the curtain comes uh, comes Christine, Christine Wagg. Uh, oh wow! The lady, the, the lady who chose to keep me alive. And how do you how do you speak after that, Earl? Well, I'll even go farther than that with you. Uh, out of the twenty-two million that were on file in the world at that time, she was the only DNA match for Earl Young. Had hmm. she not become a bone marrow donor, you and I would not be having this conversation. It's as simple as that. She kept me alive. It's her inside of me right now that is my immune system. We kid about women running our lives, Jack. Well, hey, I you got one boy here. I, I got her from <laughs> all right. angles. <laughs> honey, honey, what, honey, what do you want me to do next? That's right, right. absolutely. Uh, she's a great lady. Well, so I got to meet her that day, and uh, it's uh, that that video is on my my website that uh, the local TV station took, and uh, we've uh, been. As you can imagine, uh, very dear friends, beyond friends since then. She's been over here a couple of times. My family has been over there and traveled with her. And she's a rather great lady. She, uh, she in Germany works, uh, she's on the front line, was on the front line, still is in COVID. And uh, they take uh, uh, ambulances out. And she's in that ambulance to pick up people that can't get to the hospital with COVID. So she was right in the middle of COVID wearing a has med suit and uh, actually caught it herself. But that's the kind of person she is. Sounds like a special lady in a lot of different ways. No question. Early, as we um, as we begin to to wrap up here, I, I want to talk about your organization. Um, you know, you shared in in your research that seventy percent of of donor candidates have to be found outside a, a patient's extended family, which obviously makes the search more difficult. You already said that four out of ten or the only ones that even have a chance, but you obviously through your organization are a champion for donor awareness. Uh, what are the things that you're doing to uh, promote that? What you and your organization are doing? Yeah, I started the foundation with a focus on uh, universities and colleges. And I focused first on faith-based universities only because they have a chapel. And I thought my story was interesting enough that I could get invited to speak at chapel. And that way you can tell all those students uh, the story at one time that I just told you and how much need there is for them to step up and register as donors to save lives. Uh, we have uh, we have swabbed well over 20,000 students, put them on, on file. And uh, the good news is we had uh, 88 lives give an extension. Oh, that's, that's great. That's great. And, and this next year, uh, we got slowed down big time uh, by COVID because we couldn't get on the campuses, of course. But now we're back. And uh, Jack, I want to start hitting bigger, bigger strokes. Here, here, here's a very sad figure, very sad figure. Only 2%, 2% of the people in the United States between the age of 18 and 50 that we're looking for, 18 and 55, only 2% have registered as donors. And it's not because they don't want to save a life. They don't know the story I'm telling you right now. They've never heard this. They don't know. They don't know the impact that they could have. That's right. It's always a sad picture to me to think that there's a person right now, and this is a fact, there's a person right now in a hospital hoping they're going to find a match. And their match is walking down the street feeling well, their match is, with no clue that that person needs them to save their life. 
that's how that's a visual visual of it. It's people knowing. Uh, in a perfect country, an announcement would go out on all the TV stations advising people what I just said and how you can register. Well, we're highly imperfect, as we all know. So we've got to get the word out. It's uh, myself and my my uh, partner, DKMS. Uh, we intend to go back into and have many universities scheduled this year. Uh, we're down right now because you're coming into the finals and sure. uh, uh, Christmas, then you pick back up in January. So we've got a window, a realistic window with those college students about eight months in the year. And we go in and typically we partner with the uh, student nurses and the athletes as volunteers. And by volunteers, I mean, get the word out across. Mm -hmm. the right. Here's Use their influence. Home. You bet. Well, uh, you just got the word out to several more thousands. So hopefully we uh, we have some other uh, uh, folks register uh, as a result of hearing your story. Earl, listen. Excuse me for interrupting, but uh, if you go to my website, uh, www.earlyoungsteam.com, uh, we can uh, get a kit to swab. There's no cost. There's no cost. Matter of fact, we send it to you FedEx. You send it back to us, prepaid FedEx. There's never a cost to the donor. There's never a cost to the uh, to the donor when we find them to uh, to be the match. We cover all the hospital costs, et cetera. So a person volunteer. That's incredible. I didn't know doesn't that. Doesn't have to worry about the cost. We will have all that information as well on our uh, on our site. Um, in addition to them hearing this, and also have your video available as well. Listen, thank thank you so much for spending time with us today and, and sharing what an incredible story. It's just an impressive one. And I, I want to wish you continued success as you spread the word as you're doing on donor awareness. And man, it's such a great need, far greater than I knew before this podcast. And I also don't want to leave without also wishing you continued good health. Thank you, Jack, and you too. Well, as we wrap up another Knowledge Cast episode, a special thanks to, to each of you for making us part of your day. I hope you will join us again next week for another interesting guest like Earl. And until then, make it your goal this week to be a positive influence in the lives of others.